Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfi, editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, the official journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's January, 2022. The world is now nearly two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, and we continue to learn about the damage that the pandemic is causing both directly and indirectly to our society. In this episode of the Itchy Podcast, we'll have a conversation about the substantial surge in healthcare-associated infections that has been seen since the onset of the pandemic. Each of our guests has contributed work that in some way or another addresses the impact of the pandemic on healthcare-associated infections, infection prevention programs, and healthcare personnel. I've invited them to our virtual studio today to help us get a better sense of the magnitude of this problem and to share their insights with regard to potential causes of this rise in HAIs and what we need to do to address and overcome this problem and prevent it from happening again in the future when our healthcare system is stressed. Before we dive into the conversation, let me introduce today's participants. First, we have Maggie Dudek. Maggie is the senior author of a paper published in the January 2022 issue of Itchy that used data from the CDC's National Healthcare Safety Network to describe the impact that COVID-19 has had on HAIs in acute care hospitals across the United States. Also joining us from the CDC is Dr. David Kuhar, who is the team lead for the hospital infection prevention team in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion. We're also joined by Drs. Tara Palmore and David Henderson, hospital epidemiologists who wrote a commentary that among other things, puts the findings of the CDC study into the context of what was going on inside US hospitals at the time of the study. Dr. Henderson has a unique perspective in that he was serving as president of Shea when the pandemic began and for much of the first year of the pandemic. We're also fortunate to have Dr. Mohammed Fakih with us. He's the corresponding author of a paper that describes the impact of the pandemic on the incidence of CLABSI and CAUTI within a large US health system for which he is the chief quality officer. Next, we have Dr. Lona Modi. Dr. Modi is a physician, a researcher in the field of infection prevention, and an artist. A piece of her artwork is featured on the cover of the January issue of Itchy. This is part of our new cover art initiative in which we will feature art inspired by or reflective of topics addressed in the journal. As she has described it, her painting depicts the outsized and overwhelming impact of COVID-19 on healthcare providers and on our healthcare ecosystem in general. Finally, we have Dr. Julie Simzak, a medical sociologist with expertise in the social and cultural determinants of decision-making in healthcare organizations, who conducts research on a wide array of topics in healthcare epidemiology. So thanks to all of you for joining me today. This is truly an all-star cast, and I've really been looking forward to this conversation. So let's get right into it. In preparing for this conversation and thinking back to the first wave of COVID-19 in the US and other countries, an increasing frequency of HAIs was recognized fairly early on by frontline providers and infection prevention programs with some individual hospitals and health systems describing their own experiences, uh, such as Mohammed's experiences at the Ascension Health System. But to my knowledge, Maggie, the paper that you and your colleagues at CDC published based on NHSN data is the broadest and most complete look at the incidence of HAIs during the COVID-19 pandemic. So can you get us started today by telling us what you did and what you found? 
Sure, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on this podcast to, to join in this conversation today. Certainly based on, you know, some of the papers that you have already referenced, we definitely had a need to understand if the pandemic had an impact on the incidence of HAIs broadly throughout the United States and particularly in acute care hospitals during that first year of the pandemic in 2020. So in this paper, our team compared national and state level incidence of HAIs in 2020 compared to a pre-pandemic time period of 2019 using our standardized infection ratios or SIRs. For those who may be less familiar, the SIR is a scalable risk-adjusted observed to predicted ratio and it uses 2015 NHSN national data as a baseline from which we can measure progress. So our team made comparisons on a quarterly basis. So we compared the first quarter of 2020 as an example to the first quarter of 2019. We were particularly interested in the main HAIs that are largely a focus for many hospitals, CLABSI, CAUTI, VAE, SSI following colon surgeries and abdominal hysterectomies, and MRSA bacteremia and CDI lab ID events. We included hospitals and for device associated events, individual units that reported complete and consistent data for all months in each quarter of the quarterly comparisons. And for Clabsy and Cowdy, we included only those location types that are in scope for the CMS Hospital Acquired Conditions Reduction Program or HACRP. So those would be our adult and pediatric ICUs, NICUs, for CLABSI and the Adult and Pediatric Medical Surgical and Med Surge Ward. In addition to SIRs, our team also reviewed data related to some other patient safety topics like device utilization in order to determine any potential changes in 2020 compared to 2019. So as for our findings, prior to the pandemic, HEI incidents had been driven down for several years across hospitals in the United States, and, and this is evidenced by our many annual uh, progress reports published by CDC. This particular analysis found substantial increases in national SIRs for CLABSI, CAUTI, VAE, and MRSA during 2020 compared to 2019. What I wanna point out though, is that during the first quarter of 2020, with the exception of VAE, the national SIRs were significantly lower than those in the first quarter of 2019. And so even in those first three months of 2020, we still continued to see declines in HAIs that we had seen in the years prior. But as hospitals of course began to respond and had increases in COVID hospitalizations during that second quarter, so April, May, and June, that's when we really started to see increases in the SIRs. CLABSIs, VAEs, and MRSA bacteremia during that time all increased significantly and continue to increase for the remainder of the year. The largest increases that we saw were observed actually in the last part of the year, so that fourth quarter, with a 47% increase in the CLABSI SIR and a 45% increase in the VAE SIR. For our device-associated events, we saw a greater increase in ICUs compared to wards. 
The MRSA bacteremia SIR increased by 34% in that fourth quarter compared to the same time period in 2019, with hospitals reporting 41% more hospital onset MRSA bacteremia events during that time. So all that to say that increase in that MRSA bacteremia SIR was largely driven by an increase in the numerator. I do also want to point out that there were some HAIs for which we did not see significant increases, namely C. difficile was significantly lower in all four quarters of 2020 compared to 2019, and the SSI data were either significantly lower or showed no change compared to 2019. We also looked at impact of COVID on HAIs at the state level. Those data are available, some in the paper and additional in supplemental tables, and found that there were changes to state level SIRs that varied by region of the country and by quarter, which I think we, we anticipated given the varying surges throughout the, the country um, geographically during that first year. We found significant increases in device utilization as well. And the patients with an HAI had a longer length of stay in 2020 compared to 2019. So all of this really helps and contributes to our understanding of these increases in the overall risk of acquiring an HAI during 2020. Thanks, Maggie. That's really helpful. And do you think, is this a complete picture of HAIs in the U.S., or are there specific caveats or limitations uh, that our readers and listeners should be aware of in terms of uh, the data that you had access to? Sure. We definitely have some limitations in the data that we have. First and foremost, I do want to confront that, you know, we often get the question of how many of these patients had COVID-19. And the SIRs in this paper and in any of our uh, published works do not distinguish between patients with or without COVID. Information on voluntarily reported COVID status of the patient is not something that we explored for this particular work. So at the national level, we don't know how many of additional HAIs that reported in 2020 occurred as maybe a secondary infection in COVID-19 patients. CMS did allow a reporting exception for the first six months of 2020. So some hospitals chose not to report to NHSN during that time period. However, we still had about 88% of hospitals continue to report data for CLABSI, CAUDI, MRSA, and CDI for those six months. So I think that is excellent, but it still does not represent all of the hospitals and, and all the data that could be reported. One other uh, limitation to highlight, of course, we were focused on hospitals and, and units consistently reporting surveillance data to NHSN. So if there were um, any new units that were perhaps included in reporting to care specifically for COVID patients, those would not have been included uh, for our device-associated infection SIRs. And we did focus solely on acute care hospitals. And so we do know, of course, other very important settings like long-term acute care hospitals and critical access hospitals also had to care for COVID patients and also faced um, tremendous strains. However, this paper was focused on just the acute care hospital setting. So, you know, we have a, a large picture of, of what occurred in HAIs, but certainly it does not account for all HAIs that would have occurred in the setting. Great, thanks. That's really helpful. 
Mohammed, I'd like to maybe turn it over to you. I, Maggie brought up a good point about whether these infections were occurring in patients who had COVID or perhaps other patients who were who happened to be in our hospitals at this time. And I think your paper got into that a little bit as well. And you were able to look more specifically into who was getting um, this increased number of, of infections. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you found in your health system. Uh, absolutely. And thank you, uh, David. What Maggie talked about uh, as far as the patient population, whether it's COVID versus non-COVID is extremely important. I think CDC has given us a, a global picture of the changes. But when you look at which specific population got much more infections, we found out in our paper that addressed Calabsium cari is that if you uh, look at Calabsi, the risk, when you see the COVID population, they had a more than five times the rate uh, of CLABSI compared to non-COVID within our cohort of early pandemic, you know, the first six months of the pandemic, which is, which is incredible as far as, you know, the impact on that patient population. And also these patients, you know, the vast majority of them were in the ICU. So it was, it was also the ICU that's the dominant area in the hospital that had the, the increase in CLABSI and the vast majority were COVID patients. Uh, you know, the percentage of COVID patients compared to others is much lower, but the magnitude of, of the impact on that population is, is much higher. If I may mention something is, uh, that's very important, I think, is that when you look at the SIR, which is, I think, the best thing we have so far as far as risk adjustment, what we have witnessed with COVID is a change of population even not just the COVID population, but who comes into our hospitals. So if we remember early in the pandemic, we stopped surgeries. So, so then when you look at an SIR, it's gonna be a different SIR. You, you know, it's gonna be a different adjustment for your patient population. So it's not just the COVID patients, but what also happened to the whole population itself. Another thing that Maggie shared is that there was an increase in utilization of devices. We've seen it quite striking with the ventilators, but we also have seen it with central lines and urine catheters. And when you look at the device SIR, it does not address a change in device utilization as far as an increase, because the population is, is a different population from what we had before. And this is where we, we have you know, previously presented, and it was a publication in ITCHI, a population SIR, uh, where you look at the risk for the whole population, so you adjust for a, a change in utilization. So it will be an SUR marrying an SIR. So these, I think, are two elements that may have also impacted the numbers. The last thing I want to share is that I worried quite a bit about uh, reporting bias. So those that have strong infection prevention programs may not stop reporting versus others that may have maybe more frail or not as strong robust uh, infection prevention programs, uh, you, you know, taking advantage of the first six months not reporting. And that may have underestimated the impact of the pandemic on our HES. Thanks, Mohammed, for that.
great input and, and your personal experience in your system. I think there's been a few other papers and another one uh, by Jennifer LaRose and Tina Chopra and their colleagues at uh, one academic medical center in Detroit, where they point out that even though the majority of the increased CLABSI cases occurred among patients with COVID-19, they also saw an increase in patients with in patients who didn't have COVID. I think it was 194% increase in CLABSIs in that population, which I think is even kind of perhaps more concerning and says more about our ability to, to, to maintain safe care during these stresses on the system, because it's not just accounted for by this new population of really sick individuals with, with high-risk um, disease of COVID. And so maybe with that, we can kind of switch gears and, and start thinking about and talking about what caused this, you know, what was going on uh, in terms of why are we seeing this increased number of infections? Is it, is it just COVID specific? And I think maybe it's not. Uh, maybe it's something more multifactorial. And I know many of you have been thinking about this and perhaps David or Tara, I know you started to get into that in your commentary as to putting the, the context behind these findings in front of us. So maybe you can uh, talk about what you've been thinking about with this regard. So this is David Henderson. Thank you, David, for inviting me to participate in this podcast. As a certified old person, one thing that I can actually contribute maybe is a little bit of perspective. Uh, and I think the for all of us, irrespective of how long you've been working in healthcare epidemiology, this was an unprecedented event. So many things in our lives were turned upside down. The Families were torn apart. People lost their jobs. Uh, the mental health aspects of the pandemic can't be overstated. Uh, we, we were all dealing with quarantine, self-isolation, physical distancing, being separated from families and loved ones. And then when you came home, being worried that you may be bringing it home to your families and loved ones. The concept of business as usual, which is I think how we have done best uh, in healthcare epidemiology, virtually disappeared. And then a hundred other things happened in hospitals. As Mohammed suggested, we stopped admitting uh, elective patients and only admitted people who absolutely had to come into the hospital. We moved staff around so they were working in areas where they were really not familiar. But I think first and foremost, in my mind, I'd be interested in hearing what Dr. Palmore thinks because she often has a little better idea about stuff like this than I do. But I think the, the incredible stress of having the pandemic and all of the aspects, both the physical aspects of surges and trying to take care of patients who are very sick and often dying, patients for whom we could do little uh, in um, many instances, at least at the start of the pandemic, and then also the psychological impact of what we were dealing with really turned the hospital upside down. What do you think, Tara? Yes, absolutely. I think there was there was both the very concrete resource scarcity, so the the, the scarcity of, of PPE, scarcity of personnel burnout uh, because of shortages of of staff, uh, resulting in perhaps cutting corners. There was also, I think, to quote the the book, scarcity. <laughs> by uh, Eldar Shafir from Princeton University, a bandwidth tax of, um, imposed by the fear that came with COVID. Shortage of bandwidth 
both because of all of the different things that healthcare workers had to worry about in the context of having a hospital with, you know, with a new type of communicable disease um, in, in their midst, and but also having to try to worry about the old types of communicable infections. And so something, something had to give, and it was seemed to be the old types of communicable infections. So whether it was because of um, any one of those things or all of those things together, we can't really answer that, or it's probably everything all together. But I think that certainly whether you are a healthcare worker with your hands on the patients or an infection preventionist, hospital epidemiologist, we all had limited bandwidth. All of our bandwidth was taxed by the, in the court context of clinical care. I might add, David, this is David Henderson again, that uh, the point that Dr. Palmore made about the healthcare epi team needs to really be emphasized, I think, because the demands that were placed on the healthcare epi team, uh, developing protocols, developing procedures, trying to keep people safe in the institution, both patients, staff, as well as visitors, when we finally allowed having visitors back in the hospital, was really remarkable. And I think the bandwidth issue that she brings up uh, of not being able to conduct business the way we're used to conducting business, sort of leading the charge against infection prevention, but having instead to deal uh, with a variety of emergent issues that were brought about uh, as a result of the pandemic really limited the effectiveness of uh, healthcare epidemiology teams in hospitals around the country. Thank you. And Julie, I think you want to jump in here. Yeah. Hi, this is Julie Simzak. Thanks again for including me in this. I, I, I just really wanted to agree with a number of points that both David and Tara made about COVID. First to David's point about the fact that this is an un precedented crisis in many of our lifetimes that's yep. fractured and rearranged our entire society. All of our institutions are political, educational, cultural, financial, spiritual, social, everything's been affected. And so, you know, I think oftentimes within healthcare institutions, we, we think about problems in kind of like this isolated bubble of a way. And that when people are approaching their work in clinical settings, you know, they're definitely shaped by their immediate environment, but there's stuff outside the walls of the hospital that, that affects everybody's experience. So I think it's really critical to focus on that. And, and the way that I think about this as a sociologist, where my focus is on the people and how they're interacting within context, I think the work that I've done in infection prevention, and I've done a lot of ethnographic observations, I think that doing... <laughs> infection prevention is like, it's a choreography. And so when we think about the way in which bodies and how they've moved through space and time have been completely disrupted from the pandemic is one way where we can start to see how might these transmission events be happening because people are physically operating in profoundly different ways than they ever have. So I think that's a really important thing to consider. 
And I also think both Tara and David mentioned bandwidth. I actually think bandwidth is, I think, a useful framework, but I would say it's about attention. And it's about the fact that humans are only capable of paying attention to a certain number of risks at a time, especially if you have a finite number of people whose brains can be thinking about a thing. And I think that, you know, we had to sort of shape our collective attention and pay attention to this big crisis. And that's a natural and normal thing to do. But we also have to recognize that someone needs to be minding the business as usual or the other priorities that are going on at the same time that might matter. So so I definitely think physical interaction in space and time and then sort of attention as a resource are really critical to this story. I fully agree with Sarah, David, and uh, and Julie. When we looked at our patients, and and maybe because we're you know we we were able to uh, divide COVID versus non-COVID patients, you know there were two big elements structurally that we were seeing: a very high acuity in the COVID patient population. So it's more of an intrinsic factor: the patient population where they're very ill, they're in the ICU, they're on steroids. They may be on ECMO, they may be on immunomodulators, they're for a long period of time uh, on the vent with the line versus extrinsic factors, which, which may be the healthcare workforce, the shortages in PPE and supplies, the less clinician contact with patients, uh, no family support as advocates. All of these are extrinsic that you put them there. You know, competencies of healthcare workers where you get an OR nurse to practice as an ICU nurse without ensuring the competencies are the same. So all of these together, you add it to a structure that completely collapsed and the processes, the standard processes are gone. And you see the, you know, the perfect storm out of it. So the, the persons are very important, but also the structure has collapsed. And in infection prevention, we always talk about a structure and a standardized process. It's something that we, we really got hurt uh, with COVID. Thanks, Mohammed. David Kuhar, do you have any insight from the national perspective from the CDC of what you all have heard or seen? Sure, no, absolutely. And I just wanted to say yeah, this is David Kuhar and, and thank you for having me. I couldn't agree more with what everyone has said. It's almost haunting to hear some of these things again as we have conversations with uh, health departments and even individual facilities throughout about what was happening. I think our perspective is often, you know, a, a higher level one. And we heard just uh, again and again about the healthcare system being stressed. And, um, and by stressed, I mean in so many different ways from influxes of patients, as David Henderson had really nicely said, you've got staffing shortages, staff covering jobs that they don't normally cover in the first place. And when you have staffing shortages, it's not just among those who are caring for the you know, patients with COVID-19, but those across the boards who might be in the hospital. And you know, as they might not have the time to do all of the things that you might normally do in patient care, or as you have personal protective equipment shortages and you're trying to conserve what you're using and you're doing a job that you're not familiar with, healthcare workers can be put in a position where they have to innovate sort of their own care processes. And anytime that happens, sometimes it will go well for infection prevention practices, but sometimes it won't. And um, I, I think there was a, this was happening uh, in a more widespread fashion than it was previously and suspect that all of this together, that system stress really contributed to all of this happening. So I, I couldn't agree more with what everyone's been saying. I think it's really well, well expressed. 
I think, you know, we're talking about what happened in 2020, but I think I'm also worried, you know, this may still be happening right now, right? Because we saw from your data that the fourth quarter of 2020 was worse than the preceding three quarters. Uh, and we've certainly seen that uh, many parts of the country have experienced worse COVID burdens in 2021 as they did in 2020. So uh, we're certainly not on the other side of this yet. I want to be careful to say that we're not trying to take away from the heroic efforts uh, that healthcare personnel and healthcare facilities have made to provide life-saving care. But now perhaps at least some of us uh, have the time to think about what transpired and how we can do better moving forward uh, and to learn from it. And so maybe we can kind of shift the conversation to, to think now about, you know, with all those causative factors that we've talked about, kind of what can we learn from this and what can we do differently? How can we, how can we approach this differently next time or this time, in fact, as we try to get to the other end of, of COVID-19? No, Mohammed, you've been talking about this and had some proposed um, ideas and things sure. that you were doing locally. So I, I don't want to be the eccentric one, but I, I don't think we'll, we'll ever go back to where we were before. I think this is the time for us to rethink how we have addressed infection prevention as a nation, uh, you know, from national to, to local levels. I, I, what I've learned, and, and I can tell you, we worked on CLABSI for three years before the COVID pandemic. We, we had great achievements. And then what was shocking, because we thought we had an infrastructure, is that COVID hit, the COVID pandemic hit, and all that structure, you, you know, got really damaged. So how do we ensure sustainability and resilience of our system, infection prevention, uh, you know, structure, so we won't, we would be able to survive some big event like COVID. Uh, I, th I think we had many assumptions when we built our measures to evaluate progress in infection prevention. And the more I think about it, a lot of them, you remember, we started initially with process measures and went to outcome. But, but right now, if you look at what we do, we wanna get the process measures very, very well done. So we get to the outcome. When the outcome is there, when we reach that outcome, and if it's not favorable, uh, you, you know, we already missed the opportunity to fix these processes. You know, one of the things that, that was reported by the NHSN team was that surgical infections did not go up. But, but if you think about the attrition with surgical infections, attrition of reporting, it was extremely high. My hope is that the infection preventionists will move from reporting events and trying to figure out, you know, whether someone had, for example, an event to be completely on the floor, to be completely intervening rather than getting data. So get all these data to them electronically and, and hopefully help them figure out where the gaps are, where the opportunities are. We need to invest in structures for infection prevention, including workforce. The processes need to be standardized, and we need to relook on how we standardize these processes. It cannot be just guidelines. You know, it's much more than that. Yeah, and I just think that if we continue to invest in increasing data automation to NHSN, NHSN can expand the use of EHRs for getting the surveillance data. Certainly, that will allow us to 
potentially expand the cohorts and the amount of data that we can capture and, and actually get it maybe some risk factors at the patient level, but also can help us reduce the burden on the surveillance and reporting and increase our access to the more timely and actionable data that not just we may need at CDC, but that the hospitals and partners like state and local health departments can use to help improve situational awareness and, and uh, get at additional prevention activities. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for having me, Lona Modi, University of Michigan and VA and Arbor Healthcare System. Um, so as, as a researcher, which is the first thing that I think about uh, in any situation, this was the first time I realized that we know very little about how viruses actually get transmitted in the communities, in the hospitals, especially so. And uh, in between the communities that we have created, including my research area, which is nursing homes, uh, how, how does it happen? And how come nursing homes were so affected this time? But I was also very pleased to see how they collaborated with the hospitals a bit late. It did happen, but it was late, uh, how they collaborated with the local labs, with the local public health, with the local hospital systems. And that should never go back, but it should be further enhanced moving forward. Uh, as Mahabharata mentioned, there are structures and processes from hospital side, they were further disrupted completely from the nursing home side and were slowly put together, but the industry is gonna suffer significantly by closing down the number of beds, how we provide long-term care, to our older adults and short stay care to our older adults. So that, that piece is going to change significantly. But in, in this case, I think it's going to change in the right manner, which is increased collaboration. Uh, nursing homes will no longer operate in silos. I don't think they cannot operate in silos in a safe manner. Um, there were many other research uh, sort of questions that came to my mind, but one thing that I wonder, and I would love to hear other uh, opinions about it, is that we talk about resiliency, but I don't know if there's a good conceptual model about what we mean by resiliency. Are we talking about personal resiliency impacting our jobs? Are we thinking about a team resiliency impacting our job or a system level resiliency impacting outcomes and jobs and what are the outcomes to study? I think I'm still struggling with that question. I think personal resiliency it goes a long way in improving a team resiliency, but but only team resiliency don't, I don't think any longer is enough. It's a system level that matters the most. And what can the systems do? Yeah, I just I I think in looking back at how it how this began and sort of reflecting on what we have done in the past to get ready. I remember pandemic planning for the H1N1 epidemic that was supposed to come, getting ready for the Ebola patients and so on. We never considered how we would be able, if something did come, to maintain the level of attention and the uh, intensity of intention uh, uh, on hospital epidemiology. So I think one way of approaching that would be to go back, it may be too late for that now, or maybe it's not too late uh, for it now, but taking into consideration what we've learned in this pandemic, uh, focusing on how we can keep hospital epidemiology engaged. One suggestion that Dr. Palmore made in our uh, paper was perhaps one could uh, have a 
a SWAT team of uh, additional clinical staff that you might draft in the event of this kind of pandemic uh, to allow for a rapid expansion of effort, both address the pandemic issues, uh, but also to uh, maintain the attention on the principles and practices of healthcare epidemiology that I think a lot of us saw go by the wayside. Yeah, so I think the last few comments that have been made have been excellent. I think one of the big things that we've all learned from this is the unbelievable interdependent, interconnected nature of everything. And so to Lona's point, is it individual? Is it team? Is it system? It's all of the above, and it's all interacting at different levels. And so I think just recognizing the the impact of this on every sector and, and I think going in the future, being able to recognize that while we need to focus on the crisis and the, the needs of the crisis, we also, I think, have to recognize we had other priorities and values as organizations, you know, that we tried to, to make sure functioned really well and that somebody needs to be minding those priorities when we are faced with another crisis of this magnitude. I think the the suggestion of sort of a SWAT team, but I think leaders just need to recognize and I think the leadership level is where, you know, they're sort of over all the resources and they can kind of see the big picture that that's something that leaders should be taking into account when they think about what they're going to learn from this moving forward. And, you know, I, I just like to in all of this, facilities really need to be poised for success as they're going to do this. And I know we want to talk you know, a lot about what facilities can do, but there, you reach a point where any facility can be overwhelmed. And you know, I, I do think that there is a role for federal and local governments to make sure that they have the support that they need so that they succeed and focus on care and not have to focus too much on mitigating a crisis while letting other things go. And you know, we, we need to be sure that we have the ability to produce personal protective equipment when supply chains aren't able to maintain those supplies. We need that local capacity somehow maintained, and that needs to be done at a higher level in government. And, you know, there could even be a role for coordinating, making sure that there's, or at the very least, traveling healthcare workers that could fill staffing gaps as they need, you know, as needed. Anything that we can do to reduce that system stress. Dr. Palmore. Mohammed pointed out in his um, paper, I think very elegantly, that contract and, and traveling healthcare workers, while they did fill, fill gaps in care, may have been part of the challenge in the uh, increase in healthcare-associated infections because they weren't necessarily trained in the institutional policies and procedures in um, uh, infection control at the facilities where they provided care. And I, I think all of us have probably seen that firsthand. So I think ensuring training of traveling and contract healthcare personnel is, is a critical lesson that we've learned during the pandemic and something that can be fixed now and going forward. In, in addition, part of creating institutional resiliency might also be training other members of the healthcare team and having more overlap of roles so that infection control is not quite as siloed to infection control departments, infection preventionists. And, you know, reminding our colleagues that the basic measures that prevented infections in 2019 can still prevent infections. And when we're not in a surge situation, retrain them 
including the traveling healthcare personnel to do what we know works. You know, just to chime in to what Tara has uh, shared and, and what David has also pointed out, which is extremely important. You know, when you look at us, I, I'm part of a very, very large system, had a huge capacity, but still the hospital systems or healthcare systems, their capacity is very limited. So they, they, are, they, they work in a very lean way. If you look at industries other than, for example, if I'm a computer, uh, you know, I make computers or I make cars, I can ramp up my production. Well, with healthcare, you cannot ramp up, you cannot get more people in one night. A lot of the problems we had sometimes were not even the physical beds, is the healthcare workers taking care of these patients. So something like this cannot be fixed with just each hospital or each healthcare system working on it. I think we need to think as a country on how we build that capacity. So this is, this is a key element. Now, three other things I wanna share. We need to establish a much more robust support function for outbreaks. I know CDC has been working an incredible amount on this, but still I think there's, there's more to work on from a national to state to local level. The second thing is we need to relook at the healthcare workforce, and it's not just the IPs, not just the infection preventionists or hospital epidemiologists. We're just a sliver of the whole healthcare workforce. And in fact, we are consultants, or sometimes we call ourselves interventionalists, but the ones that are doing the work are nurses, physicians, respiratory therapists, other, other folks, and then the hospital. If we don't look at the whole infrastructure of healthcare and the workforce and how to ensure that it's, it's sustainable, I think we're going to fail. The third thing is we need to expand more on capturing the processes in addition to the outcome measures. And the reason why I'm sharing this, and I'm seeing this as, as a quality leader, not just an infection prevention leader, you, you know, we don't have leading indicators. We don't have early triggers for us to know where to go. And then it's too late. We had a stable function, stable years that we worked on infection prevention. Now it's every day is something. Every day is a new challenge. And, and unless we have these early triggers, early warning, we're going to be always behind. Thanks. I think this has been a great discussion. It's really made it quite clear that we have a lot of important and complex work ahead of us. And I think many of our listeners may be thinking that that's pretty daunting and above my pay grade, if you will. So I'd like to maybe end this conversation with a quick round robin uh, where we can each uh, provide perhaps some advice uh, of what you can do today or this week uh, to potentially make a difference in your institution. So some quick and useful advice for those who are listening and still dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Maggie. Sure. So I, I would say from a surveillance and analytic perspective, to use the NHSN provided analytic tools to support your infection prevention and patient safety programs. And this can be done by running intra-facility comparisons, working to empower your unit level leadership to use your device-associated rates and, and SIRs, and also assessing how many excess infections may be occurring either in your hospital or at a unit using our targeted assessment for prevention reports in that toolkit. 
So I would say we should start listening and learning. Uh, I, obviously, we're all still slowly digging out of this trauma um, and people are in different places with it. But I think one of the most important things to build resilience at multiple levels moving forward is to learn from what we've been through. And I, and I think that it's really critically important for those who are working in this space to just start to gather stories and gather practical wisdom from people who have sort of been fighting this uh, for the past few years. And it doesn't have to be anything over the top. I think it's just making a point to listen and learn is really critical. Yeah, I, the pandemic has taught me the urgency to start mentoring our junior people. I think they have suffered significantly uh, as a result of not seeing their role models often. So I would say that immediately pick up a mentee and start mentoring and helping them to come along at least two hours in a week. Yeah, I, I'd say um, think about ways that we can uh, sort of engage staff to help us. And so, you know, uh, encouraging, say if you are performing a patient care task and you have to change how you do that task for any reason, you know, instead of doing it inside of the room, you're trying to do it from outside by just looking rather than actively engaging or something, Think about letting facility infection prevention staff know. They, they may think it poses no issue, but they can actually think through the infection prevention implications of a new care process and maybe even intervene if they think something needs to be adjusted. You know, it, it may be a little bit too simple, but identify the area of focus, uh, elements to be hardwired, and engage the stakeholders and make sure you know who are the owners of the work. You know, who's, who's accountable. So I would just add, I think that we all participated in emergency preparedness planning prior to the pandemic. And I think we probably did a very bad job uh, of doing that. Most of us don't take it seriously. We, we might now, I think, because of what we've learned. But I think thinking about the next pandemic now, and as Julie said, the lessons that we've learned from uh, this pandemic, I, I was struck uh, from the short interaction we had with Ebola in our hospital that we planned and planned and planned for this because we were supposed to get people from uh, Fort Detrick if someone got sick with what they were working with up there. And we used to just walk through, literally sleepwalk through these plans. And then we had the Ebola people coming and then we had to really plan. And if we could somehow as a group plan at that level, when you, when you know it's coming, uh, then it, I think it induces a different kind of teamwork and it induces a different kind of preparedness uh, for these kinds of events. And so I think that, I mean, I, I guess if I had it to do again, I would, have, uh, I would have done emergency preparedness planning focused on pandemic planning in a much different way than I've ever, I, I ever participated at any level in our institution. I would say ensure that you're fully capitalizing on all the electronic tools at your disposal. Mm -hmm. So as, as Maggie already mentioned, good surveillance system and also setting up and the electronic medical record to generate automated orders for isolation for automated orders for chlorhexidine baths, automated daily queries about the need for a Foley catheter to stay in place or a central line to stay in place, for example, 
investing some effort in setting up these tools to do as much of the work as possible, I think is important since we know how limited the healthcare personnel bandwidth or attention is at the bedside. I think that's a great place to end today's discussion of this critical topic. Thank you all for this great conversation and for your contributions to the January 2022 issue of Itchy, which is now available online. I also want to thank our producers, Lindsay McMurray and Barry Wilhelm. And I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy podcast. Our guests today included Maggie Dudek, epidemiologist and lead for the acute care analytics team for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Healthcare Safety Network, Dr. David Kuhar, team lead for the Hospital Infection Prevention Team in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the CDC, Dr. Tara Palmore, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences, and Hospital Epidemiologist at the George Washington University Hospital. Dr. David Henderson, former hospital epidemiologist and deputy director for clinical care at the NIH Clinical Center and current senior consultant to the chief executive officer of the NIH Clinical Center. Dr. Mohammed Fakih, the chief quality officer for Ascension, a multi-state nonprofit health system. Dr. Lona Modi, the Hickey professor of internal medicine at the University of Michigan. And Dr. Julie Simzak, assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine.